Well, good evening. We'll try that again. Good evening. Well, I'm excited because here we are at the end of our series of studies in the book of Job. First time I taught Job on a Wednesday evening many years ago, it took us about 11 weeks to get through. This time I think it was 13, 13 or 14. We took our, our time and went through some of these sections. A lot of reading. But we're at the end of the book now, and we find ourselves in chapter 40, verse 6, the second speech of God. God compares, or the second speech compares, God's omnipotence to human weakness. So we're doing a contrast here, really. Uh, God's all-powerful nature, mankind's weakness. And that is a great contrast. Many times poetry does that. It contrasts one thing to another. And by that contrast, you learn things about each of those individuals being compared or individual things being compared. And in this case, God is so great and man is not. Man is weak. And that's the point of this whole speech by God. And we'll see that Job will respond. Uh, But before he does, let's open a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and that you are all-powerful, almighty, but you're also loving, compassionate, abounding in mercy. Oh, Lord God, you show us so much grace. We pray as we study your word this evening, you'd help us to realize just how great you are. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's look first at verses uh, 6 through 14 of chapter 40 where we left off last week. We read there then, the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Embrace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's and can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath and look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them in all the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. And then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Now there is a fair amount of sarcasm in what God is saying to Job. If you look at the things that God is saying to Job, he's essentially making it clear to him that all of his talking over the many chapters of this book are being turned around on him. When the Lord talks about God's justice, his justice, his ability to save, his voice, all of these things that he speaks of, the fury of his wrath, and all those things were the things that the three friends of Job and Job had been discussing at length. And so he's turning it around on them, essentially, and questioning Job about his pride and his arrogance. I mean, who do you think you are, Job? Essentially, that's what God is saying. Now, Job had often questioned God's justice. Now God would challenge his position. See, Job had absolutely no strength or power to save himself. And that much is clear. Regardless of his integrity, oh, he was a man of great integrity. That's wonderful. But he couldn't save himself. He couldn't deliver himself from his suffering. So he spoke a lot about why he felt God should deliver him. 
but he couldn't deliver himself. He had, in fact, condemned God's actions, not God, but God's actions while seeking to justify himself. He was saying, essentially, that what God had allowed to happen was a great injustice against him as a man of integrity. And one could make that case, but the lack of humility on Job's part before God has brought him to a place where God is now confronting him, and Job has very little to say. He's being dressed down, if you will. And this is what happens, and this is what we do when we question God. I'm very fond of saying you can ask God all sorts of questions, but never, ever question God. Job has questioned God. He hasn't cursed God. He hasn't condemned God. But he's been questioning. Have you ever done that? Have you ever asked God, why are you doing this? I don't understand. Why is God doing this? That's different than, Lord, why are you doing this in my life? It's a a different spirit. It's a different attitude. And Job has clearly allowed himself to emote in his suffering in such a way that God is now calling him into account. It, It doesn't mean that Job had necessarily sinned in calling out God, but his actions show so little understanding on his part and so little ability to comprehend the things of God that God is now in a position where he's confronting Job and making it clear that he probably shouldn't have said half, if not most, of the things that he had said. Now we get to verse 15, and Job is questioned, the Lord questions Job about a particular animal, and and he's done this. He's been looking at creation, and the Lord has been questioning Job, looking at different animals and different creations, and and looking at the heavens last week we saw, the earth, uh, all of the different elements uh, of the weather and the different things that God controls, even the animal kingdom. And now the Lord questions him about a particular animal called the behemoth, We understand that word to mean something very large, obviously. But this animal is called the behemoth, and and he he questions Job about this in order to show his own strength and Job's weakness. So the first part really just sort of brought to Job's attention his pride and his arrogance in thinking that he could communicate at the same level and think at the same level as God. Here now he's being shown that he has very little strength when compared to God's strength. And so we read in verse 15 of chapter 40, he says, Look at behemoth, look at the behemoth, which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength he has in his loins, what power in the muscles of his belly. His tail sways like a cedar, the sinews of his thighs are close-knit, his bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like rods of iron. He ranks first among the works of God, yet his maker can approach him with his sword. The hills bring him their produce, and all the wild animals play nearby. Under the lotus plants he lies, hidden among the reeds in the marsh. The lotuses conceal him in their their shadow, and the poplars by the stream surround him. When the river rages, he is not alarmed. He is secure, though the Jordan should surge against his mouth. Can anyone capture him by the eyes or trap him and pierce his nose? And it's interesting because whatever this animal is, God is using this animal to make it clear that if God could create an animal of such strength, he has even greater strength. 
And since Job's strength is less than a creation of God, why would he even begin to think that he was anywhere near God's strength? Or that he had any ability to argue his point or reason at the same level of God. Now, the behemoth was a huge, herbivorous land creature, which was clearly living in the Middle East. Some translate this as an elephant or a hippopotamus, but the description doesn't really fit. The things we read tell us that his tail was cedar-like. A cedar tree is a very large tree, very thick trunk, so that doesn't make much sense, even if it was an elephant. And also in verse 19, we're told that the behemoth was first among the works of God. So what does that mean, first among the works of God? Well, that means this is a very large creature, much larger than, let's say, an elephant or a hippopotamus. Some believe that this might even be a dinosaur, an extinct dinosaur, such as a Diplodocus or a Brachiosaurus. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, Pastor, when, when I went to school, they told me that the dinosaurs lived millions and millions of years before mankind was on the earth. Now, that is debatable because no one was there to observe. And I know the geological record is used to substantiate millions and millions, billions of years. Yet the Bible tells us that that isn't true. The earth has gone through a dramatic change since it was first created, and we attribute that to the flood. So a lot of the geological record that we observe happened in a cataclysm at once. See, we can't imagine what the world was like before it was destroyed in the flood. But clearly the flood destroyed this planet in a great way, and what remains, looking back, it looks as if the destruction and the geological layers happened over millions of years, and yet we know by God's power it happened over months. Now, here's the thing. You can say, well, Pastor Tim, you have no proof. Well, neither do geologists, not really. Carbon dating and other uh, things that they use to substantiate these theories are suspicious at best, inaccurate many times. There's a lot of debate between creation science and science as we know it, evolution science, evolutionary science. So all I say to you is that if you believe the biblical account, then in fact, dinosaurs were on the earth at the same time as mankind. There is some evidence that can be used to substantiate that theory. Uh, it is a theory, and I think that if that's true, clearly this animal fits the bill of being something much larger than a hippopotamus or an elephant. Just something to think about. Remember that the book of Job uh, was written many, many years uh, before Christ, and so this is probably the case, but the Lord is bringing it up for a purpose, to show his strength and Job's weakness. And then the Lord questions Job about another creature called Leviathan, and he does this to show his own power and, and Job's lack of power. So all of this is contrast. God's ability to understand all things, but Job's pride and arrogance in thinking he could. God's power, his strength, Job's weakness. Job's lack of power. And so we read in verses 1 through 11, let's just look at that, in chapter 41. We're going to be talking about 
Leviathan. And I'll explain in a minute. This is another creature like Behemoth. Can you pull in the Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he keep begging you for mercy? Will he speak to you with gentle words? Will he make an agreement with you for you take him as your uh, for you to take him as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders barter for him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his hide with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on him, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing him is false. The mere sight of him is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse him. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. So the reason he brings up, that is the Lord brings up Leviathan, is to make that contrast between God, his character and nature, and Job who professed such great wisdom and understanding and power and ability and clearly can't even be compared to God. And so the Lord questions Job about Leviathan. Now, if Job couldn't stand against this creature called Leviathan, how could he possibly challenge God? And he was challenging God's actions and his circumstances. Now, Leviathan, from all descriptions here and throughout the Bible, was a large aquatic animal described as a sea monster or a dragon. And what's interesting about that is while clearly dragons and sea monsters do not exist today, there are many references to creatures like this having existed in the past in all the major world cultures. You'll find dragons in just about every culture. So do I think that dragons once existed? Well, something very much like a dragon or a sea monster is talked about in the Bible in many places. Some believe it is a sort of a mythological creature and it's talked about to be figurative. But the way God speaks in this next section about this creature leaves one believing that there's no doubt God is speaking about a creature like Behemoth, another creature that he created, very strong and fearsome. And so we read in verses 12 through 34 a very great description of this creature. Let's look at verse 12. God goes on to say, I will not fail to speak of his limbs, his strength and his graceful form. Who can strip off his outer coat? Who would approach him with a bridle? Who dares open the doors of his mouth, ringed about with his fearsome teeth? His back has rows of shields tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between. They are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. His snorting throws out flashes of light. His eyes are like the rays of dawn. Firebrands stream from his mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from his nostrils, as from a boiling pot over a fire of reeds. His breath sets coals ablaze, and flames dart from his mouth. Strength resides in his neck, dismay goes before him. The folds of his flesh are tightly joined, they are firm and immovable. His chest is hard as rock, hard as a lower millstone. When he rises up, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before his thrashing. The sword that reaches him has no effect. Nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin. Iron he treats like straw and bronze like rotten wood. Arrows do not make him flee. Sling stones are like chaff to him. A club seems to him but a piece of straw. He laughs at the rattling of the lance. 
His undersides are jagged potsherds, leaving a trail in the mud like a threshing sledge. He makes the depths churn like a boiling cauldron and stirs up the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a glistening wake. One would think the deep had white hair. Nothing on earth is his equal. A creature without fear, he looks down on all that are haughty. He is king over all that are proud. And so what a lengthy description of this creature. And one can only begin to imagine what it looked like. But I can tell you, God seems to be speaking about an actual creature. He's not speaking figuratively, nor is he speaking from a mythological perspective. This was a real creature. Clearly does not exist anymore. It is definitely described as a large, fire-breathing sea creature, which aligns with all of our stories of ancient myth. So, It's not that far from other things we've heard. We've just always assumed that a creature like this had never existed. Perhaps it did. It seems to have existed. You know, there are creatures that are talked about throughout history that have long since gone extinct, clearly. I mean, dinosaurs would be one example, but there are many creatures that no longer exist. In fact, many species go extinct every year. Many, many species have gone extinct even in our lifetimes. So that's not too hard to imagine. But I want to read a few scriptures so that you see that the Bible talks about this creature, Leviathan, a fair amount. In Psalm 74, in verse 13, we read this. He says, It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave him as food to the creature's of the desert, speaking of God. And so you see that, taking that example of a creature, so fearsome, so amazing, and God yet, God was powerful enough to deal with it. That's the point, poetically. Uh, Also, Psalm 104 has something to say about this. And again, these are poetical books, so um, they, they take some license here, but the idea is the same, that God is great. And in Psalm 104, in verse 25, we read, There is a sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There are ships, go to and, uh, there the ships go to and fro, and the Leviathan which you formed to frolic there. So again, a reference to Leviathan. Even Isaiah has something to say about this. In Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1, says, In that day the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great, and powerful sword, speaking of him judging the enemies of Israel. Leviathan the gliding serpent, Leviathan the coiling serpent, he will slay the monster of the sea. Now there it's figurative. He's speaking of an enemy of Israel, but he's likening the enemy to Leviathan. So Leviathan is used figuratively in some portions of Scripture. But in the book of Job, it seems that God is talking about an actual creature. You know, speaking of fire-breathing dragons... uh, It's interesting that there are animals that are able to create chemical reactions that we can observe even today. There's a beetle called the bombardier beetle. It has the ability to create an explosion. Uh, So it is possible that God created some type of animal like this 
that has since gone extinct. But I believe in any case, this may be the true source of the many dragon legends around the world talked about in the book of Job. Now, some translate this creature, Leviathan, to be a whale or a crocodile, but I think the description doesn't fit, not even close. First of all, verse 12 tells us that this creature has impressive limbs. Also, 18 through 21 makes it abundantly clear this creature is fire-breathing. It has a strong neck in verse 22. It's impervious to attack in verses 26 through 29. And nothing on earth is his equal. So, some believe it might be yet another dinosaur, extinct dinosaur, such as a plesiosaurus. We don't know, but the animal leviathan and the animal behemoth are used to show that God is great. For if he created these amazing creatures, so much more powerful than man, certainly man has no place to question God. Amen? That's really the point poetically. But we learn a few things in the midst of that speech. Now, Job goes on to answer the Lord's questions, because he's being asked questions by the Lord. So at this point, the Lord is quiet, he stops speaking, and Job is expected to answer. And so we read in chapter 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. Yeah, that was really the point of God's two speeches, to make it clear that God can do all things. I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Remember those words. No plan of God's can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you, and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It's interesting to contemplate why Job suffered. But one of the things that came out of the suffering of Job is that he was humbled in the presence of God. You see, one of the things we have to understand is, by nature, Job was a sinner. By nature, we're sinners. By nature, we're proud. And God will sometimes, and I'm not saying this is the reason Job suffered, but certainly God will sometimes use suffering in our lives to humble us to make us humble so that we are not proud. Sal and I were talking about, while we were setting up this afternoon, we were talking about individuals that are maybe very good at what they do, musicians or others, sometimes artists, photographers. They're very talented, you know, and they know it. And sometimes they speak in ways that are arrogant and proud. I don't think there's anything more unattractive than that. What is attractive is when someone's incredibly talented and they're also very humble. That requires, I think, a work of God to be good at something and talented and skilled and still have a humility before God and man. I think it's fair to say that one of the purposes, remember that's the theme of this book, God's Purpose in Suffering, One of the purposes of suffering in our lives, even even difficult, very difficult things and tragedies, 
is that we might remain humble before God's presence. Is there anything wrong with that? Well, certainly not. But understand, sometimes our wickedness, our pride, our sin nature requires going through difficult times that God will allow just so that we become the people that he's called us to be. That's a difficult pill to swallow. To think that God would allow us to suffer, you, me, all of us, to suffer so that we can become humble and meek like Christ. Have you ever prayed this prayer, oh Lord, make me like you? We used to sing a song, make me like you, Lord, make me like you. You were a servant, make me one too. I I think of those words and I think, what is required to, to make us like him? Could it be that sometimes the only thing that can do that work is going through a time of extreme suffering? Just something to think about. It might help you to understand some of what was going on here in Job's life. And maybe some of the things you've gone through and that I've gone through. As we've gone through these things, God has used these things in our lives to make us humble, more like Christ. And so... Job answers the Lord's questions, but he does so in complete humility, if you can see that. He acknowledges that God is all-powerful and confesses his own lack of power. He acknowledges that God is all-knowing, but confesses his own ignorance. He acknowledges God's eternal glory and confesses his own unworthiness. That, brothers and sisters, is a good place to be. And if suffering brings that into our lives and into our character then it's probably a worthwhile experience that God has ordained us to go through. Well, there are two types of knowledge as it relates to God. There is testimonial knowledge and experiential knowledge. Testimonial knowledge stimulates theological controversy and it encourages self-sufficiency. It's this idea of knowledge that I've acquired. But experiential knowledge... It silences debate and leads to profound humility because the things that you have learned through experience inevitably humble you. Like, if you've learned through trial and error to do something in your life, there's been enough trial and error to keep you humble. But if you think you know something that you've never experienced, if you sort of proudly suggest that you know something because you read it in a book, you have a tendency to think more highly of yourself than you ought to. So testimonial knowledge is head knowledge. Experiential knowledge is heart knowledge, life knowledge. And I'll take that knowledge over testimonial knowledge all day long because it will keep you humble before God. Well, each of us must come to this startling realization and repentance before God humbling ourselves before him. And you cannot make yourself humble. You can't say, oh, I'm going to try really hard to be humble and I'm going to be really good at it. You can't approach humility like that. Only God can make that happen in your heart. And suffering is always a part of that process. I think of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, who was humbled before the presence of God. Or Daniel in Daniel chapter 10, where he just fell at the Lord's feet as dead. Or Peter, who when he was on that ship said, Oh Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips. 
He bowed down before Jesus the way that Isaiah did, recognizing that he was a sinful man. And I think when we come to that place, we have really, truly grown in knowledge of who God is through humility. Well, we get to the end of the book now, and Job's friends are rebuked, and his life is restored because the purpose of God in suffering has been completed. So while I won't profess to know why God allowed Job to suffer, I can tell you there was a purpose in his suffering. We've talked a little bit about what some of those things might have been in humility. There were other reasons and maybe many more that we'll never discover. But at the end of the day, God had a purpose in bringing Job through a very difficult time. Let's read in verses uh, 7 through 9. Here the Lord rebukes Job's friends and restores his life. And we see that he was very angry with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, the three friends of Job. He says, after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So now, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly or your foolishness. You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Nemethite did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So there's the rebuke for Job's three friends. Notice Elihu's not rebuked. Elihu took a position of defending God, and therefore he really didn't speak out of line. It was these three friends who suggested that Job had sinned and that was the cause of his suffering, who are now rebuked because that was not the cause of his suffering. And so now they are, in fact, rebuked by God. And the Lord was angry with them. And so the Lord settled once and for all who had won this great debate. It was Job, not his three friends. The counsel of Job's friends was untrue. And Job was still a man of integrity, even though they suggested that he wasn't. Elihu's rebukes were really similar to what the Lord said, which was you're really speaking about things you don't understand and, and suggesting to him you shouldn't say these things. But Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar had essentially said, you're wrong, Job, you're a great sinner, and that's why you're suffering. Now, the Lord commissioned Job to make priestly intercession for his friends. By his obedience... Job exhibited a divine quality in his intercession. Think about it. Now, Job is being asked to intercede for the friends that wouldn't intercede for him. And this is a great lesson for us. Those detractors and critics, those faithless friends, those individuals that have wronged you, hurt you, taken advantage of you, misunderstood you, They need your prayer and your intercession, not your condemnation. If Job turned around and said, well, Lord, I'm not going to pray for these guys. These guys have been driving me nuts now for weeks. No, not at all. Not at all. Job, of course, obeyed the Lord in humility and interceded for his friends. Job was still the Lord's servant despite his great suffering and even his pride How many times the Lord said, Job, my servant, my servant Job, right? 
Go to my servant Job. My servant Job will pray for you. My servant Job. Several times there. So you can be foolish. You can be proud. You can be a little too bold and still be a servant of God. But notice when Job was humbled in the Lord's presence, he was given a task, and that task was to intercede for the people who had wronged him. I'm getting a little tired, no, actually very tired, of everyone in this world justifying their pain by going after others. You know, we live in a world where if you're having a difficult time because of your ethnic background, your language group, or your skin color, you got to blame somebody. That's the only way you're going to find any reconciliation with the past so you can move on. You know, the Eagles wrote a song. It was a good one. Get over it. I think all of us need to truly, with humility before God, recognize that those that have wronged us need our prayer and our intercession, not our condemnation. That's what changes the hearts of sinners. So this whole victimization, this whole victimhood movement today where you have to find someone who doesn't like you and, and, and just blast them in order to make yourself feel valuable and, and receive validation is from the pit of hell. Jesus is our great example. Jesus, who when he was railed against, did not do that in return. Jesus, who showed love and compassion to his enemies and told us to do likewise. Jesus is our example. And Job is given the task of interceding for those who wronged him. And listen, I won't listen to anyone complain about their life if they're not willing to pray for and intercede for those who've wronged them. If all they want to do is bring judgment and justice and vengeance against those that have harmed them, then they're on the wrong side of this coin. We, as Christians, need to forgive. And that is how we are set free. Amen? The world out there, they, they want to hang anybody that might look like somebody that wronged them. Where do you think that comes from? Well, it doesn't come from God. And so Job, given this mighty ministry now, to intercede for his friends. And the Lord completely restored Job through his intercessory prayer. You see, here's what happens. The, the, the enemies of Job, his friends, were actually become his enemies spiritually. They were prayed for and interceded for by Job. And amazingly, something happened to Job. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, after, notice, I want you to look at that word after. Because it's after Job had prayed for his friends. It says, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house and they comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys, and he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, 
and the third, Karen Hoppock. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. And after this, Job lived a hundred and forty years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so he died old and full of years. It's not just about Job's ending. It's about the process of humility and bringing Job to a place where he interceded for those that were against him. If we go through a time of suffering that ultimately leads us to the place where our character is Christ-like, where we can say, Father, forgive them for they don't even know what they're doing, then the suffering of this life will have been worth it indeed. The purpose of God in suffering, among many things, is to make us more like Christ. And I think that's what you see here. The Lord completely restored Job as he prayed, after he prayed for his friends. He became twice as prosperous, and his family and his friends returned to him. If you look at the numbers of cattle and herds he had, eventually his possessions were doubled by God. It didn't happen overnight, but eventually he had twice what he had before God allowed Satan to take it away. And he was blessed with new children which replaced those that had been killed. Now listen, unlike his possessions, Job only, he had lost 10 children. He received 10 more children. He didn't receive 20 children because Job hadn't lost his first 10 children. They were still alive spiritually. But he was given another 10 children. And these beautiful daughters were given to a man that had suffered such ugliness in life. Jemima means a dove. Kezia is a spice derived from a tree bark. It's similar to cinnamon. And Karen Hapik means a container of eye makeup. <laughs> I guess, what would that be? Mascara? Not mascara. Eyeshadow. That's it. I don't wear it, so I don't know. Something beautiful. Something you would wear to beautify yourself. That's what her name meant. So, th- so this is all about God's re- uh, restoration of Job. And notice he was blessed to live an additional 140 years in excellent health. This is the same man that thought he would surely die in his suffering and said so over and over again. This is the man who thought he would die without any descendants because his children had all died. This is a man that thought his last moments on earth would be his very worst. He was taught to trust the Lord in his suffering, though he was never given any reason why he suffered. This is the man called Job. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, we pray that we wouldn't have to suffer so great a circumstance as Job in order to become more like you. We do pray that you would do your work, your perfect work in our hearts, by your grace and your mercy, and that we would be compliant, that we would obey, that we would go willingly and stay humble before you. But Lord, do your perfect work in our hearts to make us more like you, that when we see you, we shall be like you, for we shall see you as you are. Oh, Lord God, we look forward to that day, and thank you for the difficult work in our lives. And look forward to you making us more like Jesus each and every day until we spend eternity with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.